The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you've got your copies of God's Word in Genesis 1, um, I'm going to ask you to kind of bear with me just for a little moment now. Um, folks, I'm, uh, I'm, I'll share with you a little bit of pastoral perspective and burden in these matters. Uh, the Sunday morning series we're doing right now trying to establish a theology of spiritual gifts. And obviously, I've kind of focused in on it, and I'm wanting to keep building it so that you're you're putting the framing principles on top of the understanding principles, and you see them coming out of the text. And there's a reason for that. It's not only because spiritual gifts are so important for a church that wants to be on mission, on message, and in ministry, but there's another reason. I, I, listen, the landscape is littered with churches that have been absolutely decimated by um, by a, a cultic view of spiritual gifts, uh, the inappropriate administration and definitions of spiritual gifts. So that's why I'm wanting to kind of painstakingly build it. Uh, not, not to, I know I don't go rapidly through texts of Scripture to begin with, but this is even more important for me on Sunday morning that we lay this groundwork because the practice of spiritual gifts will become divisive. I mean, the very thing that's meant to unify God's people on mission and on message and in ministry can actually be the most divisive tools in the hands of Satan. And that's why I'm really wanting us to get this theology of spiritual gifts. So thanks for your patience there. And then secondly, and of course the other thing is, is as a pastor you don't have a captive audience. You know, everybody's with you from Sunday to Sunday as well. And then the second thing, though, is the same thing's true tonight, uh, particularly in addressing this issue of gender. In the LGBTQAI plus, and it's, the plus is important because it's not going to stop. It's going to keep expanding and enlarging this uh, sexual revolution uh, in our culture. That um, uh, it's very important uh, to, and, and the T, the transgender issue, is, uh, is that which is really exploding at the moment. Um, I'm <clears throat> trying to get this down for us to be um, as clear as possible, um, it, and if at all possible, that you've got a good grasp on it, and how, if I can, if I can do it this way, taking a look, and this is what I'm trying to do with you uh, in this um, tonight, and we'll kind of finish it up tonight, and then dive into some areas uh, where Christian manhood and Christian womanhood are to manifest themselves in singleness, in marriage, in parenting, uh, in the church, and in, and in the society. So if you can kind of think of it this way with me, uh, if you could, that um, what we have is we have... We have creation, masculinity, and femininity. That's what God has established. Masculinity and femininity. Two genders. God made man 
as his image bearer. And he then made man male and female. So there is biblical, there is creation masculinity. How does the male, how does the male image God in masculinity? The male image bearer of God in creation masculinity. How does the female image God? Female, mas- uh, female masculinity as the female image bearer of God. And you will notice in our society the constant references to toxic masculinity. I actually do not doubt that there's toxic masculinity, but you very seldom hear something else, and that is there's toxic femininity as well. There's both toxic masculinity and toxic femininity. But in the culture, they're not saying that there was a, there was a sanctified where God has pronounced good creation masculinity and femininity, and now it is toxic. What they're saying is any and all masculinity is toxic. It's not simply we need, uh, what, what and I'm, I'm going to use a word I probably shouldn't use, but I've got to get the point across. The only possible, the only possible masculinity allowed is one that is emasculated from manliness. That's the only one that would be allowed. One that is redefined. And, um, and, 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 uh, the fact is, in his wonderful work, Men Without Chest, uh, C.S. Lewis makes the point that you cannot get stallions from geldings. You just can't do it. And that is exactly what is happening in today's, in today's, uh, uh addressing of this thing of toxic man. Now there is, I'm gonna try to define it for us, and we got started in it, and almost finished it last week, and I'm gonna pick up there in a minute. There is toxic masculinity, and there's toxic femininity, and it comes in Sin, the fall. So you have creation masculinity and creation femininity that is sanctified, sacred, and good. It no longer is sacred and good. Why? Not because masculinity and femininity from creation is toxic, but because the fall into sin has brought the toxicity toxicity into masculinity and femininity. But praise God, we have a glorious God who is full of grace and truth. And he has sent his son to do a work of redemption so that toxic masculinity and femininity can be reversed by the grace of God. And now we can delve into the restoration to creation, masculinity, and femininity in common grace and the glorious testimony of biblical masculinity and femininity in redeeming grace. In other words, because of what Christ has done in grace, even unbelievers can be restrained from sin and to some degree return to the intentions of creation for man and woman. We call that common grace that Christ has done. But there is redeeming grace where God changes sinners. 
And therefore, you can then, you can then see the, pros- the prosperous movement of biblical masculinity and femininity producing men of God and women of God are Christian manhood and Christian womanhood. And then what I propose to do is to take us to see what does that look like in the life of a single man and a single woman. How do we deal with singleness biblically? And what does that look like in the life of a marriage, a husband and a wife, a Christian man as a husband, a Christian woman as a wife? And then what does that look like in parenting, a Christian father, a Christian mother, manifesting uh, Christian manhood and womanhood? And what does it look like when in the church, Men and women redeemed by the blood of the Lamb together and yet functioning as men and women of God in the church where their distinctions are not seen as entrapments or as tethers, but actually as the tracks for freedom in their life. What does that look like? And then what does the testimony of godly manliness and godly woman, womanhood. What does that look like in the world? So that's where I'm trying to go with this, and I'm trying to make sure that you've got some ammunition for you, uh, uh, with you, that when you deal with this, and you're going to deal with it, if you're sending your kids into a public school, you're going to deal with this. If you're, and I'm not, I understand why that choice is made. That's not my point. Now I'm not debating whether you have to go to a private school, Christian, private Christian school, homeschool, or what. That's not my point right now. What I'm saying is, as you traffic in this world and this progressive secular movement continues, you are going to have to know biblically what is happening out there, how to deal with it, and how to deal with it from the heart outward through God's Word. So that's why I'm trying to take the time for us to understand it. So let's take just a moment in a very brief review on creation, masculinity, and femininity. And if you would, go to Genesis chapter 1, and I'm just going to read verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now, I'm not going to read the creation accounts again. But here's what you want to remember from last week. Creation masculinity, creation femininity, the clues for it and the definitions of it are found in our creation. Men and women, that is male and female, have been created man. Man is the image bearer of God and man exists in two genders. So there's the male image bearer, there's the female image bearer. So whatever ma- uh, masculinity and femininity is, the, the primary thing it is, is that it allows us to fully manifest the glory of God, to bear his image. That then leads us to a very key word. The man, the man as male cannot fully manifest the glory of God. In fact, the female is needed. The completer helper is needed. Thus, we have a concept in theology that we have embraced called complementarianism. That is, it takes both male and female 
to complete each other, to properly give the, give the image and to reflect the glory of God, the triune glory of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What we say no to is egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says that equality is interchangeability. So you got a man and you got a woman. And so you can, a man can do what a woman does. A woman can do what a man does. They're equal, which means they're interchangeable. In other words, equality is sameness. Now you see immediately from the scripture and all of our study these last weeks, that stands patently, biblically wrong and illogical. When God made Adam male and then he said it's not good for him to be alone, why? It wasn't psychological and relational. He had fellowship with God. There's nothing lacking there. What it meant was he can't get done what I made him to do. Fill the earth, subdue the earth, and rule over the creatures. He can't do it alone. He needs a helper completer in order to image me as my vice regent over this creation that I have created for um, for uh, man that is male and female. Well, if it wasn't good for Adam to be alone and he needed a completer helper, God obviously didn't make another male. He didn't make, there wasn't Adam and then he made uh, Steve. <laughs> that didn't happen. And uh, so, uh, so, nor did he replace Adam with two females. What he did was he made the other different but difference is not inferiority. Difference is difference. And that's how God made man. Male and female to properly image him. And the masculine testimony of God's glory is joined to the feminine testimony of God's glory to rightly reflect God's glory in this world. The second thing about creation, masculinity, and femininity comes from our creation mandate. We were mandated to do three things, to subdue the earth, to rule over the creatures, and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So because Adam is given that responsibility, if he's to fill the earth, if he's to rule over the earth, and if he is to rule over the, the creatures of the earth and subdue the earth, he's made from the earth, the dust of the ground. But if he's incapable of doing it alone in the right image bearing of God to accomplish his creation mandate, then God makes him a helper completer. He doesn't take her from the dust of the ground because she was made in her femininity to be joined to him, to complete him. So she is taken from his side because she's going to come alongside of him as they unite together and the two become one in testimony to the glory of God. So we then begin to come up with the understanding when we see how they're, why they're created as image bearers of God, what they're created to do, the creation mandate, and how they are created by God with the dust of the ground and from the side, we can then put together the basic understanding of creation masculinity and creation femininity. Now, what is it? Well, here's what it is, is the man was called to be the love, the, uh, to be the lover and leader 
in their relationship together. He is to love his wife and he is to lead his wife. And his primary responsibilities is propagation, provision, and protection. That's what he is called to do. As the, as in his masculine role, he is to love and lead. And as he loves and leads, he is to propagate, uh, with his, uh, suitable helper. He is to provide, um, and he is to provide in this home that God has given to them. And he is to protect her. Now, what is Eve created to do? Well, she is the one who is the lover completer. That's her calling. Femininity is to lovingly complete or the helper completer, the one who loves by being a helper completer. Well, what would be three bullet points for us to understand that? She brings order and ardor into the relationship. She brings order and she brings ardor. She brings, she brings both nurturing and she brings home, uh, you can call it nesting, whatever you want to call it. But she creates the environment of the, um, of the marriage and she nurtures within the marriage and she will be the nurturer for God's blessing and the fruit being fruitful and multiply. So then number three, she is, she is the one through whom reproduction comes. She bears the children and she also brings renewal into relationships. That's what the female is made to do as, as informed from the creation mandate, the creation act and the creation purpose in bearing God's image in this world. And of course, they are reflecting God. God propagates. God provides. God protects. God brings order. God brings ardor. God brings, uh, God brings a, um, a home. God brings nurture. God brings, uh, God brings reproduction. And God brings renewal in life. So then happens the fall into sin. Now let me do this again quickly. We covered part of this last week. Take your Bibles and go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now this, I'm going back to it because I believe this is crucial. Let me just tell you, not theologians do not agree with this, particularly those who occupy the chairs of progressive Christianity and various educational institutions, uh, professing Christian institutions. And so I've debated this so many times, but I'm sharing it with you because I'm convinced of it. And, um, and I'll be glad to give you the more in-depth work in the language if it would, if it would be helpful for you or you would like to know it. So go with me to chapter three which records the fall into sin. And we know that, um, uh, we know that I'm not going to go back over the fall where Eve misquotes God, the Satan comes disguised and deceptive. You can be like God. And then, uh, but I will make sure that you know, uh, you know something that when she ate, slip down to verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, 
eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That is, she could not simply be like God, because she's already like God. She's an image bearer. She could be God is what is at work within the heart in the fall into sin. And the usurping of God. And then so what does she do? She takes from the fruit and she ate and she gave some to her husband. Now she's providing. He's not providing. He's not protecting. He is not, uh, he is not doing that which he is called to do. Therefore she now gives to him and he, she didn't have to go hunt him down. He's there as an onlooker the entire time. And you can't get away from that in the text. She took from its fruit and she gave to, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig cloths to, fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. A little backstory there. I shouldn't do this, take the time to do it, but I think I will. And that is, uh, uh, there's one of my favorite Bibles I study from, try to study every week, is the Geneva Bible. That's the Bible that settled this country. Uh, it wasn't the King James Version. It was the Geneva Bible that settled the country. And it's, it was the first Bible with study notes. And they were put in there by a guy by the name of John Knox as he brought forth the English version, version in uh, Geneva. And uh, in this place, they could not bring themselves to use that word I just said, loin cloths. That was entirely too risque. So they translated that he made for himself breeches. So fig leaves became breeches. Thus, the Geneva Bible became known as the Breeches Bible. And that's how, that's how it was known. And it, of course, was the inspiration for Shakespeare. And out of Shakespeare came inspiration for the King James. Well, that's another story. But if you would, look with me now at, um, at, at what happens. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, um, the Lord God. God among the trees of the garden. Now, what has been introduced for them? Shame, guilt. The sin has produced shame, guilt, and fear. Those are the three things that are now brought into existence, absorbed into their existence. So the Lord comes and he says, where are you? And then we know that um, uh, Adam um, blamed the Lord and he blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent and the Lord held them responsible. And then uh, so um, look with me, if you would, in the 16th, 14th verse, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly shall you go and you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And so we have seen that enmity, that enmity of Satan against the woman, against the um the bride of God in his covenant people, Israel, and then enmity now against the church as he attempts to devour her. 
And so you find that he's got enmity. For what purpose? Because of war against the woman and the seed. And it's here, I think, again, that the NAS has the better translation. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And there is the anticipation of the virgin birth because women do not have seed, but there will be a woman who has seed. And she will give birth to one who will, co- who will embrace this conflict to redeem us from our sins. And he will be bruised in his heel, but he will put the death blow to the head of the serpent. And that, of course, is fulfilled in Christ. So here is your first Proto-evangelist, evangel, your first statement of the gospel that's indicated for us of God's promising a deliverer through a miraculous birth in an appointed woman. And then he says in verse 16, uh, and then he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Now watch, underline this, your desire shall be to your husband. But he shall rule over you. Now, it says, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, the first blush when you read that, I mean, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Um, you know, that she'll desire her husband. But actually, you have to do a little bit more work in the Hebrew word. You'll find this word is repeated three times in the Old Testament. It's repeated Genesis 3, it's repeated in the Song of Solomon, and it's repeated right here in Genesis 4, the next chapter. Now watch how it makes its appearance in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain has sinned, and he is now in spiritual depression, and he is going to, of course, uh, bring forth... Uh, the very first murder as he brings forth um, the uh, death of Abel. But but look at what God says to him after he, God had no regard for his offering. Now what does Cain do? Instead of repenting of not bringing the first of the fruits of the ground, but some of the fruit of the ground, then uh, and uh, he then, uh, it says that he became... Um, he became angry. Look at verse, um, look at verse five. But for Cain and his offering, he had no, uh, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That, that be a, a depression came upon him and, and a brooding anger is dominating him. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not, will you not be accepted? And then what does he say? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. So sin is pictured like a what? Like a lion. Be preparing for his prey. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is to dominate you. His desire is to devour you, but you must rule over it. That there is that same picture, desire and rule. Now, what does desire mean in that? It doesn't mean wants to sidle up to you. It means wants to dominate you and devour you. 
So what is the curse of sin upon, upon creation femininity? It is a desire for the husband's position and profile of existence. Your desire shall be for your husband. That's what, that's the curse that comes upon Eve and her daughters. That's the curse of sin. That's the toxic femininity. And what is Adam, what is the response? He shall rule over you. That Hebrew word is a noun that rightly is translated tyrant. So if it's a noun that's rightly translated tyrant, but the noun has been turned into a verb translated rule, you also could translate it how? He shall tyrannize you. So now you have toxic masculinity and you have toxic femininity. Toxic masculinity is, is the fact that, that man in response to his wife will either seek physical domination or isolation or abandonment. So that the sin, that man in his sin will then deal with femininity by domination, that would be the, the uh, taking advantage of the physical, um, uh, the physical abilities he's been given for protection and provision, and now use it as a tyrant of domination and or abandonment. Hey, I can get along without you, and um, and then abandons the woman, as we see that happening throughout all of society. Well. What is the woman's response to the man uh, because of sin? Either servility or, uh, or usurpation of the man. Either servility or usurpation. So the man will either abandon the woman or the man will intimidate the woman in domination. That sinful act will be there. And then the woman... Her response because of sin to the man is either one of servility, thus we see uh, all of the various ungodly sexual trades of life, or uh, sexual trades of life, or will be one of, um, of usurpation to control the man, to dominate the man in the way that she can with what she has by virtue of creation, um, uh, creation femininity now under the curse of sin. Now, folks, I don't have time to do this, but let me just say, if you go to Romans chapter 1, all of this toxic masculinity and femininity is compounded by something else. And that is fallen men and women will not have God to rule over them. You have in the book of Genesis, I've tried to show you time and time again, particularly in the creation week, you've got God and you've got his creation. There's the binary. God, there's nothing until God brings the creation. And he orders it and he, he forms it and he fills it. So God and his creation. But yet fallen man, male and female, will not honor God. The Romans 1 says that, that even though they knew God, they would not honor him as God. And they worshipped and served the creature 
rather than the creator. Now, how do you rebel in the binary of creator and creation? How do you rebel against it? You rebel by denying all the binaries that God put in creation. So you saw in the creation week, there's land and there's sea, there's light and there's darkness, there's male and there's female. Here are the binaries. And the one that that man in his fallen nature uh, go, uh, directly assaults is the binary of male and female bearing the image of God. It's like Satan can't get at God, so he goes after the bride of Christ. And fallen men and women can't get at God, so to fall short of the glory of God and not give God glory, they then strike out against all the binaries that God has established that reflect the binary of God over his creation. And thus, and thus you find in Romans 1 the death spiral. First into sexual promiscuity, then into sexual perversion, and then into social approval of the pursuit of androgyny, denying the difference between male and female. And you're seeing it being developed with, with, the, with, all, of the, with all of the culture shapers of our society buying into it. So the... Whether it's journalism or the academy or big business or big government um, or the um, uh, or the apostate church, whatever, whatever, all of these culture shapers are now busy putting forth a culture that denies the binaries God has given. And what's the result? A culture of insanity, a culture of absurdity, a culture of uh, immorality and a culture of lethality, a culture of death. Despair, death, and chaos in the rebellion against God. Now, uh, so uh, there's many more texts that I could go to on this, but let me give you, so what is toxic masculinity and femininity? It's man dealing with woman in domination or abandonment, and the woman dealing with the man in servility are in um, are in acts of usurpation uh, and and uh, attempts of domination over the man. So the curse of sin shows up in the activities of man, male, and female, and the curse of sin shows up in the relationships. But praise God for redemption, and God does a glorious work of redemption. And therefore, we in Christ can be restored to a biblical masculinity and a biblical femininity. And here's what happens. Because of what Jesus has done and the witness of God's grace that is greater than our sin and reverses the fall, then God has two streams that come from the risen Christ into our world. The stream of common grace that restrains unsaved men and women and the stream of redeeming grace that transforms unsaved men and women through the saving grace of Christ. And so when you see that happening, then what you see is the testimony of biblical masculinity and um, and femininity that begins to be spread as salt and light into the culture because of God's common grace. 
thus manners, thus various acts that are that uh, that reflect God's redeeming work, not savingly, but restraining the sinfulness of man, so that our total depravity does not become absolute depravity, and therefore male and female re- relationships are not as evil as they could be or would be because of common grace. But the common grace is enhanced because of redeeming grace. When men and women become men of God and women of God, and they have now the embrace of Christian manhood and Christian womanhood in order to serve the Lord. Okay, I need some help here. I have spoken so many times on this recently. I did give y'all, I did give y'all the illustration of Latimer and uh, play the man, right? Hello. Okay, good. You remembered it. Can I tell you how encouraging that is? You may not have remembered the sermon, but you did remember the illustration, and I am so grateful for that. So if you'll take your Bibles now and go to that text, I'd like to show you something to conclude tonight, and then we're going to have a wonderful short um, uh, congregational meeting to celebrate the life and ministry of uh, of our dear friend uh, Phil Reddick in just a moment. So if you would, I want you to go. Uh, as we're going to set this up as we now pursue and move into Christian manhood and Christian womanhood in singleness, in marriage, in family, uh, in the church, and in society. So if you'll go with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Here's a phrase that you're going to find four times in the Bible. And it's, um, and Latimer is the one who said it to Ridley when they were dying for Christ in Oxford. Mr. Ridley Play the man or act like a man. So if you would go with me. Uh, now here we are post fall, post work of Christ, God's grace at work in society. And now there's something called manliness, something called womanly, womanliness. And look at it and how it is said in first Corinthians chapter 16. Look at um, here's what Paul says at the conclusion of this epistle that we've been looking at chapter 12 on Sunday mornings. And, and this is what he says in verse 13. Be watchful. Here's the first thing he says. Be watchful. Always be alert. There are five exhortations. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Well, here is the reclamation of creation masculinity. Now, he tells him, be watchful. Don't stand by and let your wife be deceived. Don't stand by. You step up that you're watchful. You stand firm in life for Christ. Folks, it's no fun. It's no fun to attempt to... Um, to be on the alert and to and to stand firm for Christ and his word uh, in order to honor the Lord. But it is our calling. And when those moments of happiness are not there because of the cost of being on the lookout and of standing firm in the faith, then it's time to act like a man. Now, am I am I just in another world? Am I somehow illogical? I just think it's logical. 
If there's something called act like a man, then there must be something called act like a woman. They're not interchangeable. There's manliness, there's womanliness. There is biblical masculinity and Christian manhood. And there's biblical femininity and Christian manhood. We're not going to go there now. We are going to go there. But if I was to go to Titus chapter 2, you'll notice that older men are to teach younger men how to be a man. Go look at the list. And then it says older women are to teach what? Younger women how to be a woman. Go look at the list. And what you see is a man who is to lay down his life to lead and love his wife. And a man and a woman who respects and completes her husband and brings the nurture and order and ardor into a home. To be keepers of their home. Not housewives. I, I, I just do not like that phrase. Can, you don't marry a house. You're not housewives. We're husband wives, ladies. Well, you are. I'm not, not we. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. You are husband wives and you are homemakers. And so you see this, this glorious picture that it's just indicated clearly here. Act like a man. Well, that means there's something called act like a woman. Well, what would be the virtues of manliness and what would be the virtues of womanliness? What would be Christian manhood virtues and what would be Christian and what would be, and what would be, uh, virtues for a woman of God as well as a man of God? So let me give you the two as I see it in the Word of God. Men are called to be strong and courageous, to embrace life's responsibilities. Men are called to be strong and courageous. They're not to stand by and not do what God's called them to do, to provide, to protect, and to propagate. They are to step up, step out, and step forward. They are to be strong and courageous. And they are to be sensitive and compassionate in relationships. That's why in our culture, there was a term that was developed to, to affirm Christian manhood. It's this word, gentle men. It's not, it wasn't an invented word to go on bathrooms. We put it on bathroom doors because it's a word that is the picture of what men ought to be when the culture was influenced by Christianity. We're not to be like the Old Testament, where Lamech says, if you think Esau is something, I killed a boy. In fact, I killed a bunch of them. Here aren't these tyrants in life. No, we have men strong and courageous, not to dominate, not to intimidate, to defend, to protect, to preserve, to provide. And you know, when you get up in the morning, as a child, my dad's going to be there. And you know when he goes out the door as a wife, 
He'll be back. He's coming back. He is strong and courageous to embrace the challenges of life and the responsibilities of life. And he is sensitive and compassionate to engage in the relationships of life. He doesn't walk over people to be somebody. Let me try to give you an illustration. I take um, men on um, and women uh, on. In fact, I'll probably be taking. Uh, there's a military. Uh, I mean, a police academy. I'm going to be taking to the battlefield of Gettysburg. And one of the places I like to take them to is a little spur, and that spur is down on the side of a place called Little Round Top. And it was there a very crucial point in the three-day battle of Gettysburg took place. And it was, um, it was between uh, the 15th Alabama. What an amazing group of men. They were about 380 strong. And they had marched, now think of this, July the 2nd. <laughs> they had marched 28 miles that day. And then made nine assaults up a hill. And defending that hill was the 20th Maine, about 280 men. And they were defending that hill under a guy that was named Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. He actually was born Lawrence Joshua Chamberlain, but his, um, but his, uh, um, that was his mother wanted him to be a preacher, so she named him Joshua. His daddy wanted him to be a military man, so he named him for the great Commodore uh, Lawrence. And so, uh, and he liked the name, but he turned it around, and it became Joshua Lawrence instead of Lawrence Joshua. He went to Bowdoin College, and he graduated. He then um, graduated from Bangor Theological Seminary. Became a missionary to the Indians. He began to fill pulpits. He was an amazing preacher. So he had all kind of invitations. But he ended up coming back to a place called Bowdoin College. And he became the professor of natural and revealed religion. He followed, and, and also the professor of rhetoric. He followed a guy by the name of Calvin Stowe. Who had a wife named Harriet Beecher Stowe. Who wrote a book while they were there. And that as you know would be Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he was there. They're serving at uh, Bowdoin College when one of their famous graduates came back, a, a man of deep faith in the Lord. His name was Oliver Otis Oliver Howard. And um, I'm sorry, Oliver Otis Howard. He had lost his arm, but he was still uh, a general and um, up in the upper echelons of the Union Army. And he came back because there was only two Maine regiments. Maine had just become a state. It used to be a part of Massachusetts. And so he had just become a, he had just become a, uh, he had come home and, uh, was recruiting a third regiment. It was called the 20th Maine. And he, as he was retur- as he was recruiting this, uh, next regiment that had been, re- the third one that year that had been recruited, um, he, he, he challenged, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who had just written an amazing paper, you ought to read it sometime, called Law and Liberty. And that law cannot take away liberty, and liberty must always be ordered by law. And so he felt, I have a duty, and I have to enter in, uh, to this war. And so he offered his service. Services. He was he was offered the colonelcy of the 20th Maine, but he turned it down. He turned it down because he turned it down because um, 
because he said, I'm not properly trained. I love this humility. I'm not properly trained. Ambition didn't rule him. He said, I'm not properly trained. It would not be fair to the men for me to lead them into combat. But I would gladly take a lieutenant colonelcy if you'll put me under a West Point uh, colonel. And they did. And so he then went into the Battle of Antietam. Uh, he went into the Battle of uh, Fredericksburg. Uh, horrific uh, casualties in his men. And um, actually stayed on the battlefield for two days at night. They couldn't get him off, and uh, nor his men. And then uh, Chancellorsville. And then came the Battle of Gettysburg. His Adelbert Ames, his colonel, had been promoted to general. So now he got promoted to colonel. So his first full uh his first full time in command of the regiment was at Gettysburg and he was put on the far left of the line and strong Vincent looked at him and said I place you here you cannot move if you move the entire line will falter and all will be lost and so he stayed there it was an amazing thing he did a bayonet charge with no I can't go into all of that I would love to go into all of it with me but you can walk with me on the on little round top sometime and I'll show you where all of that happened and uh, and afterwards uh, uh, oh, I didn't tell you this when he was made lieutenant colonel there were 14 faculty members who wrote to the governor and said he is a very brilliant man but he is made for the classroom not combat <laughs> that's why I very seldom uh, take references from professors about when we interview for staff. <laughs> I don't, not sure they know uh, how to get, what to, what, how to evaluate. Uh, let me, let me explain to you. He got wounded six times and he got the Congressional Medal of Honor. So much about not being fit for combat. And one of the times he was wounded was right there at Little Round Top. He later got the Congressional Medal of Honor for his performance. But what I really wanted to tell you about was years later, it's 1864, the siege at Petersburg had just begun. There was a place called Rive Salient, and Grant had sent word down through General Warren to Chamberlain, take Rive's Salient. Chamberlain looked at it, he sent word back, General Grant, there is no way. This would be suicide. Grant said, I want this over. I've given you the order, make the charge. So he planned it out to the best that he could. He led his men out that day. It's right below Petersburg. It's Rive Salient, and he led them out. And as he led them out, the Confederate line unleashed a volley. And there the 58 calibers came across that small space. And one of them ripped into his left hip all the way, tumbling through all of his intestines to the right hip and then lodged there. He had his sword up in the air. He said, men, follow me. Give them the cold steel. And as the bullet ripped through, he had to stick the sword in the ground to hold himself up. And he raised and he reached over because the color bearer had dropped the colors. And he picked up the colors and wrapped in the colors. He said, men, don't falter. I'll see you at the top. But the blood that filled his boots and poured out of his uh, abdomen uh, brought him down to his knees in which he put the sword in the ground and leaned against it so he wouldn't fall. But eventually he fell unconscious. 
A guy by the name of Bigelow, Captain Bigelow, Rhode Island Artillery, sent his men out and they rescued him. As they were pulling him away, he said, men, my wound is mortal. And he pointed to two other men and they said, sorry, General Chamberlain, we were given instructions to bring you back. They brought him back. Dr. Abner Shaw began to operate on him and he woke up twice that night during the surgery and said, keep on. And then finally, Abner Shaw sewed him up and said, Chamberlain, I have done the best for you I could. You need to get your affairs in order. It will soon, you will soon be in eternity. So he picked up a piece of paper and he wrote on it and he sent it to his wife. And he said, Francis, I am not of Virginia, but Virginia is of me. My blood stains her soil. Would you join me in prayer? That with this sacrifice, men might be free. But I want you to know, I die in perfect peace in the hands of providence. Because the blood that stained Calvary has set me free. Major Horatio Sickles walked up to the bed. And he looked at him. And he said, Chamberlain, you're an amazing man. You're a Christian man. You have the soul of a lion and the heart of a woman. Strength and courage. Sensitivity and compassion. Don't you see it in Scripture? See Moses? See David? Bears, lions, giants yet a poet, a musician. But look to your Savior, who on the cross had legions of angels ready to bring judgment upon humanity that had put their hands upon the Son of God. And Jesus says, Stay. I am saving my people from their sins. And he wins the victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he ever lives to intercede for us because he empathizes with us. Sensitive and compassionate. But even look to the heavens. John was weeping. Is there no one worthy? Then he heard a loud voice. Weep no more. There is one worthy. To open the seals. And I looked and saw the Lamb standing. As if slain. The lion. Of Judah. We desperately need men. Lion hearted. And lamb like. Gentle men. Who act like men. Well I'm out of time. We got to get Phil retired. But I'll try to give you 
another illustration on this and go to the two virtues of womanhood when we come back after the missions conference. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Would you please, um, would you please hear our thanksgiving, our love to you who has so wonderfully loved us. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Would you please raise up men of God and women of God who can act like men and act like women who bear the marks of the virtues of grace, specifically in what we've covered tonight. Men who are strong and courageous to do what they've been called to do in the responsibilities of life and who take care of their people sensitive and compassion in relationships and I'll give you praise because it's all of you and for you in Jesus name Amen You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.